I'd invite you to uh, join me in turning in your Bibles to Ephesians 4, as we continue on in the Word of God, in Paul's epistle to the Christians in Ephesus. Now, one of the things that, as you're doing that, let me make a, a comment. Um, one of the things you will notice about the epistles of Paul uh, is that he always tends to have a pivot point at some point in the letter in which he moves from the indicative to the imperative. Now, indicatives are, are things to be known. Uh, so we tell people uh, about something. And then in the imperative, we are telling them to do something. Uh, because of these things, therefore do this. There's usually a therefore pivot point somewhere in that letter where he switches from talking about the doctrinal truths that Christians believe to the way that these doctrinal truths should affect directly the way that we live our lives for Christ. Uh, it's in the Latin, it's credenda, leading to agenda. Now, in bad preaching, we tend to mess up that, that beautiful balance between things to be known and things to be done. So uh, bad preaching tends to be all either things to be known, and that can be, you know, I could stand here all night and tell you about the semantic range of certain words, historical facts, uh, and, and so on. But if I don't apply what's being taught in the Word of God, have I done any good, really? Or... I could stand up and simply tell you what to do. I could become a, a moralistic preacher or a therapeutic preacher. I could tell you, do this, do that, and not give you any reason for doing so, not founded in anything, not, not talk about the power that's necessary for these things to be possible. Paul doesn't mess that up. He, he gets the, the balance right. He always starts out by telling Christians the truth and then tells them, because of these things, because these things are true, because of what Christ has done, for instance, therefore you, and then he launches into that. We are in there for that point where he has moved from the indicatives. Now he's talking to the, the Christians about the imperatives, how to live out our lives. So let's, before we read the word of God, let's seek his face and let's ask for his help to understand it. God, our Father, we understand that your word is not merely a document to be studied and appreciated. It is uh, a document that tells us how to live our lives as Christians in the world. It tells us of the danger that we are in if we continue on in our natural condition without closing with Christ. But it also shows us the way that we should follow our Lord and Savior. I pray, therefore, that as I preach tonight, you would be the light of my mind, that you would help me to apply these truths and not merely to open them up. I pray that we would all be filled with a desire to, to be the kind of Christians that we should be, to live out our lives before our fellow men in a way that shows them that we walk with Jesus. I do pray a prayer of thanks that you've given us this word. You've not left us in the dark. You've not left us building towers trying to grope our way into heaven. But instead, through your son, Jesus Christ, the final revelation, you have sent us his word and told us what is true and told us what to do. Help us to take these things, therefore, to heart. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Reading now from Ephesians chapter 4 and verses four, uh, 17 through 24. And I do remind you, this is the word of the Lord. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, 
to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been brought, uh, taught and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I didn't actually plan uh, to preach through Ephesus at the same time that I would be visiting the ancient site of Ephesus in Turkey, but uh, that's the way it worked out. Uh, It was a wonderful blessing to be able to walk on the same streets that Paul walked on, uh, to go to the, uh, for instance, the theater in which the riot that he almost lost his life and he was he was desiring to enter into uh, the midst of that theater and it seats 25,000 people. Uh, because of this, archaeologists have computed that the population of Ephesus was around 250,000, just slightly larger than Fayetteville, for instance. Um, but to be there, to be in the same place that the riot with the silversmiths and the people shouting great is Diana, uh, or rather Artemis of the Ephesians and so on. And then to go into the Agora, to, to walk down those same streets was, uh, was an amazing experience. But certain things struck me as I was in that city. First off, this is no mean city, Ephesus. It was uh, not a poor city at all. It was a city in which you saw, uh, even in the remnants, even in the ruins, displays of quite a bit of wealth. They had all of these monuments and so on. And, and there were places all along the row, uh, all along the street as you walked down, where there would have been street vendors. Uh, there was a stoa there for people to walk under and for them to look at it and sample the various goods that were available. Um, they had a community that was not founded around pleasure, obviously. It wasn't like Corinth in that sense. Uh, although they did have um, brothels within the city, one of the tours that we could have gone on would have gone to one of the ancient brothels and so on. It still wasn't, uh, it wasn't a pleasure city. It was definitely a city, a port city that was founded around Tourism, religious tourism, coming to see the the Temple of Artemis, which was a little way further than where we were, uh, founded on religion. There was a a heavy emphasis on civic religion all over the place. There were images of the various Hellenistic gods, and the Romans had appropriated them. Uh, I said earlier, Diana instead of Artemis. There's really no difference. The Romans simply took Artemis and made her into Diana and so on. And throughout the city, you saw these monuments to the gods and so on. And then it's interesting, for instance, you would see a pillar. On one side would be an image of Artemis. And then on the other side, you would have a reminder of something to do with the Roman government. For instance, Caesar and his power and so on. There was that heavy tie between state and religion all over the place. Civic life was constantly being... Uh, stressed, even in the things you read, there was an inscription, for instance, on a statue that the, sta- the citizens and the, the town council had erected this statue in appreciation of the works of a particular doctor, and so on. As you went down there, you see all of this reminder. This was once a thriving community. It's a reminder also that just as this was once a thriving community with, uh, with indoor plumbing, uh, we went to these terrace houses where the super wealthy amongst the, uh, the Ephesians lived. And, um, you know, I, I didn't realize, for instance, I knew that they had indoor plumbing. They had hot and cold water running water. But what I didn't realize is they also used steam to heat their houses. 
they had central heating for the, uh, for the winter. This was something that the Europeans wouldn't regain until the 18th century. So this was a, a city where you could live very, very well if you had the money. And people were constantly striving after money. This was a place rather like New York or, or London in its, uh, in its way. Um, but the interesting thing is, Paul, who lived in this city for almost three years, how does he sum up all of this activity, all of this commerce, all of this religion, all of this religious tourism, all of this striving and grasping and so on? What does he call it here in these verses? He sums it up as futile, futile. They walk, he says, in the futility of their mind. A word there, futile, meaning vanity, emptiness, everything that they're doing, it all amounts to nothing. It's so much air, so much vapor. It's so important to them. Every day of their life, they get up out of bed and they go through these activities and they're constantly concentrating on them. It's what their mind strays to every moment of the day. And yet he says, empty. It's futile. It doesn't do them any good. What's the apostle saying here? He's emphasizing a very important point, namely that, uh, that all of these endeavors that the Gentiles are they're putting forth to, to, to gain happiness, to gain wealth, to, to have a life that's complete, all of them ultimately will fail them like sand slipping through their fingers. None of these things will stay with them. All of their expectations that they hope will blossom and bear fruit, ultimately they will not do so. It's very much like what Solomon speaks of in Ecclesiastes, where he talks about how we strive, how we work, how we do all of these things outside of God, outside of Christ. And what do they amount to? And the answer is ultimately vanity, nothingness. In the Psalms, Solomon, who also wrote Ecclesiastes, obviously, puts it this way in Psalm 127, in sections 1 and 2. Uh, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Unless what we do is in Christ is founded in a relationship to him. What Solomon says, and this was a man who had wealth greater even than the Ephesians, it's empty, it's vain, it's useless. It comes to nothing in the end. And all of this, Paul tells the Ephesians, points out the the essential problem. It's not a problem of behavior. It's a problem of motivation. It's a problem that exists not without them, that is outside of them, but within them. It's a problem of the heart. He talks to the Ephesians here about the natural darkness of the human heart. You remember in Ephesians chapter 2, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles, please, back to 2 in sections 1 through 3. And here he's talking to Ephesian Gentiles. He's talking to Christians, but he's reminding them of where they once were. He says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. And he says, there, that's a universal. He's not saying, you were the worst of the Ephesians at one time, 
but God redeemed you. But rather he's saying this is the natural state of man. That's your fellow citizens without Christ. They are dead in sins and trespasses. Their desires are depraved. They walk according to the course set for them by the prince of the power of the air. And who is that, incidentally, kids? Who are we talking about when we talk about the prince of the power of the air? The devil, okay? It's Satan, his agenda, his program that they're working uh, according to. And he says, don't walk like that. Don't walk according to the way they walk. Now, uh, he says, when he says, don't walk according to the way of the spiritually dead, he's not saying that the spiritually dead people had a zombie shuffle, you know, or anything like that. It wasn't their physical walk that he's referring to. Walk is a way of life. I think um, William Hendrickson put it very well when he said, to walk in scripture language includes all the manifestations of life, inward and outward, seen and unseen. It does not express merely the outward visible deportment. Men are said to walk with God, which refers to the secret fellowship of the soul with its maker, more than to the outward life. So here the walk, which the apostle enjoins us to avoid, is not only the visible deportment characteristic of the Gentiles, but also the inward life of which the outward deportment is the manifestation. In other words, the way that they walk is or the way that they live their life. Everything that they do, everything that they say is a visible manifestation of what's going on in their heart and their spiritual condition. And remember, while we make a distinction between mind and heart, the ancient Hebrews did not do so. Paul did not do so. The heart describes for him not just the emotions, not just your your feelings, but all the inner life that goes on within you. It, It includes your thoughts, it includes your desires, your dreams, your feelings, everything that's going on at any time. It includes the inner monologue that's constantly going on. Even now I know that's occurring within some of you, although some of you may have already hit the test pattern and you're like, you know, there's nothing going on. But... When he speaks of the heart, he's speaking about the inner man. What goes on in your soul? The things that we can't hear until they're expressed. And when they are expressed, what are they? They're a manifesting of what's going on within your heart. Their hearts, Paul says, of the fellow citizens of these Ephesian believers, he says they are hearts of darkness, to quote the Joseph Conrad uh, uh, book title. They're devoid of light. Why are they devoid of light? Because they're cut off from God. They live in darkness. They don't have the light, the illuminating light within them that only Christ can bring. They do not have what Solomon asked God for in his better days. Solomon asked God for an understanding heart. He put it this way in 1 Kings 3.9. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? He rightly said, unless you give me that inward illumination, that that renewed heart, that understanding heart that rightly discerns, I'll make all the same mistakes that worldly kings make. My my system of value will be wrong. I'll, I'll want the wrong things. I'll make the wrong decisions. I'll judge according to the wrong measure. And ultimately, I'll do your people no good. I need your indwelling in order for me to understand how to live, how to rule. And he was right about that. We all need that. But without that, 
The human heart is hardened, Paul says. It is, it is calloused, so to speak. You remember that there are people who, well, still in the world, who work all day with their hands. And the hands get damaged and gradually the skin begins to build up over them until their hands become very, very rough. And I'm told they've become very, very unsensitive. This is after your, your hands are covered in calluses, you can't really feel as well as you once did. You certainly can't play the violin as well as somebody with uncalloused hands because there's that thick layer that prevents you from feeling the way that you should. Paul says their hearts are like that. When they sin, they don't feel it as much. Why? They've suppressed their conscience they have seared consciences, as is put elsewhere. You know that when you, you burn uh, the, the flesh, it produces a scar. And you, once again, because the nerves are damaged, you don't feel as much as you should. These people have seared their consciences so they don't feel things as acutely as they should. They assumed, therefore, that all of the futile things that they were doing were very, very important, and they did not listen to the alarm bell that was going off within them. They had gradually, they had, you know, attempted to, to silence it, done everything that they could to, to quieten their conscience, the natural conscience that God gives to all people. But this would do them no good. In 2012... A, uh, a company attempting to sell a Sukhoi superjet booked passage for 45 potential buyers. They filled up the plane. This was in Indonesia. They were hoping to sell to various Indonesian clients. They filled up their plane and they, they took them on a ride. They invited them to come into the cockpit as well to talk to the, to the pilots so the pilots could explain the, the features of the plane. And meanwhile, in the back, you know, the stewardesses or the, I'm sorry, flight attendants served, uh, you know, tidbits and champagne and so on. It was all designed for the maximum selling experience. At one point, however, the plane's TAWS, which is Terrain Awareness and Warning System, went off. Unfortunately, the pilots were occupied with explaining to the potential customers all of the features of the airplanes. So one of the pilots, after it had gone off several times, simply reached over and turned it off so that the alarm was no longer blaring. A few seconds later, the jet flew into the mountain that they were being warned about, and all 45 people on board were killed. What Paul is saying is that the alarm is going off in all of our lives, but we are so consumed with things, like the Ephesians were absolutely consumed with commerce, and the people trying to sell that jet were absolutely consumed with that, thinking of what they could get in this world, that they ignore the eternal realities. The alarm goes off as you sin. Hey, you're not right with God. Hey, that's wrong. Hey, you're going in the wrong direction. Hey, 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 click. I've had enough. It's an irritating sound in my ears. I don't want to hear it anymore. And how many times do people make that decision when it comes to those who are telling them the truth? Whether it be a preacher or a teacher or a parent, I don't want to hear the truth anymore. I've got more important things to do. Click. And they're done. Of course, they don't admit it was the truth any more than that pilot thought that the, that the system was actually working properly and was about to warn, I was trying to warn him, hey, you're flying into the mountain. 
You're about to die. But he assumed that that was wrong and false. And so, too, the natural man assumes all of those warnings that he receives, whether it's through preachers like me or other sources who see the truth, who see the danger. He assumes that the warnings are wrong because he has decided to silence that conscience that works within him. Now, these Ephesians weren't living lives that were, you know, the Romans wouldn't go to Ephesus and say, oh my, these are, it's not like Corinth. They went to Corinth and they saw how depraved the Corinthians were, even though they kept coming back to the city. It's like Las Vegas. We all go, oh, so disgusting. You know, their, their greed and their gambling and their lasciviousness and let's go next week. That kind of thing. The Romans would go and say, this is just a normal Roman city, particularly prosperous Roman city, a civically active Roman city, a very religious Roman city, and yet one in which very few people were on the right path. Most of these people, Paul says, and he lived there for years, he knew them, he said they were greedy for money, greedy for worldly gain, greedy also, he noticed, for lewdness. Not as obviously as the Corinthians were, but nonetheless, their desires were corrupt. I I saw that lifestyle in New York City when I was working there for several years all the time. It was absolutely socially acceptable. Every day you scrabbled to make money. Uh, You you cracked all these lewd jokes in the office constantly. And everybody was, you know, looking uh, for someone else to have fun with. There was so much sexual promiscuity. And everybody thought that was okay. They thought that the winner was the person who walked away with the most stuff and who had the most pleasure in their life. So the winners were the, the, the stockbrokers, the hedge fund managers who managed to, to rake in the most bucks and have the most leisure time and, and the biggest estates and, and, and the most girlfriends and so on, or the real estate mogul with the most properties, the most money, the most time and fame on his hands and so on. The guy who did really, really well, you know? That kind of thing. They wanted all of these things. The person with the most women, or these days the most men, was the winner. And it would have been no different in ancient Ephesus. But Paul says to the Ephesian Christians, he says to them, that's not you. That may have been you. That's not you anymore. You're different. He says to them, and he uses this interesting phrase. I I hope you noticed it. He says, you did not so learn Christ. Now, when he says you did not so learn Christ, that means more than simply to learn about Christ. It's not merely that Christ was preached to them and they heard about him. Not only that that the Ephesians had received, you know, a, a corpus or a body of doctrines Uh, or that they had simply observed the lives of the people who were teaching them and and, and judged them. But they themselves had had the gift of the Holy Spirit given to them, and they had, to use that quaint old term, welcomed Christ into their hearts. That he was living within them. And by a constant attendance upon the means of grace, the ordinary means of grace, uh, and and prayer, and and by daily living in accordance with, with the instructions that they had received, 
they were living a Christ-like life in the world. But Paul makes it very clear that that salvation in Christ is a learning process. It's It's a growth process. A learning of both what we would call heart and mind. They would call simply heart. Um, Now, believers, we know this. When we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when he changes our hearts and we believe on him, we are saved. We are acquitted. We are counted as righteous in the eyes of, of God. We are saved in that moment. And were we to die immediately afterwards, we would go to heaven. You remember the thief on the cross Uh, He said simply to Jesus, remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus gave him this assurance that this man who had believed that Jesus was the Messiah, this day you will be with me in paradise. Now, how many good works did that, that thief have time to do? None. Not a one. The only thing that he had ever done right was to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was a result of the working of God within his heart. He was saved, and he went to heaven that very day. But ordinarily, you and I are saved for good works. Paul made that very clear in in Ephesians 2. Turn back to that section that we saw before. We're going to go beyond the the merely bad news, but to the good news of how we're saved. And then starting with verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship. We didn't, we didn't save ourselves. We didn't bring ourselves into that state. We aren't changing ourselves. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. For what purpose? To sit around and do nothing all day waiting for Jesus to return. No. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we are saved, and then we are supposed to advance in Christ in the way that people learn about things as well. We did not so learn Christ, he says. They were instructed systematically about the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were gradually growing in their knowledge of him, and not just growing in their knowledge of him, but growing more like him as they did so. But they weren't completely transformed all at once. It wasn't one day they're, they're, you know, walking the way that all the Ephesians do, perhaps particularly bad examples. And then suddenly the next day, ah, they're floating five inches above the ground and everybody says, that is a super Christian over there. That's not the way it works. Rather, it is a progressive process by which we are conformed to the image of Christ and it's wrought in us by the power of God. There's a, a process of sanctification as we're set apart and increasingly made holy and it's constant in the life of a Christian but not the same for everybody. It's not uniform. So we don't all progress at exactly the same rate. Some people zoom ahead. Others make steady, constant process. Other people, it's a more halting, you know, gradual uh, growth in grace and progression. But gradually, over time, we are being conformed to the image of Christ. We become more Christ-like, more mature, more wise, more holy. But as I said, it's not the same for all of us. Again, uh, Hendrickson has some good thoughts. In one person, it had been more clearly evident than in another. At one time, the progress had been by leaps, but at another time, a snail's pace. At times, in all likelihood, there had been reverses, retrogressions, what we call backsliding from time to time. The point which the apostle emphasizes, however, 
is that whatever had been their degree of advance in learning, they had definitely not learned Christ as an advocate of sin and selfishness, of lewdness and licentiousness. Those are the marks of of people who haven't been saved yet. That's one of the reasons we can immediately dismiss all of these so-called forms of, of Christianity that say you can be a Christian and then have the same desires, the same practices, you, should, you can look exactly like a worldling and live a life completely contrary to the commands of Christ and say, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. No, no, really. I just don't do anything that he said I should. I am utterly carnal. Well, brothers and sisters, that's, that's not real Christianity. That's not true sanctification. I, I mean, it really is no holiness, no heaven. Honestly, if we are being saved, if we have been saved and are being saved, progressively being sanctified and conformed to his image, it'll show. And our desires will change. We have to turn away, therefore, from the old way of living. That's something that Paul makes absolutely explicit. We have to put off our old nature, the fallen Adam, and put on the new nature and follow Christ. And that is so easy, isn't it? To put off the old nature and put on the new? No, not in my experience. It's actually, it's difficult. Again, another quote, I promise this is the last. But basic conversion must be followed by daily conversion. Even though in principle the believer has become a new creature or creation, he remains a sinner until he dies. The old nature with which the Ephesians had been on such intimate terms for so many years is not easy to shed. Getting rid of it is difficult and painful. It amounts, in fact, to a crucifixion. So what are the things that have to happen if that change is going to occur, if we're going to become the different people that we need to be, if we're going to be conformed to, to Jesus? What are the things that we should see? Well, first, he notes this. Note, Paul says, if you have heard him, he says, but you did not so learn Christ if you have heard him. Now, this does not mean to merely hear about him. The apostle here is writing to the Ephesians, knowing that the people he's, he's talking to, they'd heard Christ in the way that you'd, you'd heard about Christ. You have listened, well, the majority of you have listened to me, uh, even if you've fallen asleep since I started. You listened for a while and you heard about Jesus Christ. You heard things that were true and he knows that they have as well. But that's not enough, is it? Is that enough? For instance, would your parents consider it enough if they said to you, you have to clean your room. And you responded, I have heard you, Father. And then you go back to whatever you're doing. <laughs> That's great. Uh, but um, really hearing me, really hearing me, will involve the bang, my commandment as well. Jesus makes the same point, doesn't he, in Luke chapter 6. And I would encourage you to turn back there. Luke 6. And then starting with verse 46. He asked this question to his hearers, the people who were there listening to him. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream vehemently and immediately it fell 
and the ruin of that house was great. If we have ears to hear, it means that we'll put what Jesus says into application. That's the first part, to really hear what he says. Secondly, for the change to occur, we have to put off the old and put on the new. You can't continue in the old life. If you do, you haven't actually started the new life. To put off is to remove, to turn away from, to to renounce your old life as as a garment is laid aside. In in the old days, and, and even to this day, eventually, a garment becomes so filthy, old, and ragged that it it gets thrown away. I used to struggle against that process, incidentally. My, my, first my mother and then my wife would have to take garments away from me, like, you can't put that on anymore. It, it, it makes you look like a hobo or worse. And oh my word, come on, dude. We need to be doing the same thing. We need to be putting off the ways of the old man, the outer garment. It's only suitable for being burnt. That's what's going to happen to the old man. He's going to go down to hell and be burnt. Now, there's a sense in which this this putting off and putting on is final. If you are in Christ, if any man has believed in Christ, he is a new creation. But there is also a sense in which you are being renewed. Paul speaks about this, I think, more succinctly than in Ephesians and Colossians and Colossians 3, 9 and 10, he says this in verse 9, Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge, according to the image of him who created him. So you are renewed, you are new, and being renewed. You have been saved, and are now being conformed to the image of Christ. You have definite definite salvation, And you are also being sanctified. What you have received is more and more evident in who you are to the rest of the world. Or at least it should be, Christians. Now, unless the initial spiritual change uh, that Paul speaks of in Ephesians 2 that we've gone over before has happened in your heart, you can't do this. Okay, this is not an act of renovation. This is not merely outward obedience. There are many commentators I listen to, many different things that I find helpful on the internet. Uh, But I have to admit, theologically, wow, they're terrible. I'll give you an example. One of the guys that uh, I've enjoyed in the past is Dennis Prager. He does the the Prager U and so on. And many of the points that he makes are brilliant. He has great insights. But I I watched him sit down and he's talking about um, Exodus, the book of Exodus. And he's coming from the perspective of a a Jew, uh, a secularist Jew, very, you know, materially minded. And he he made a point that was, uh, it was Actually, it's very insightful in its own way. He said, I'm very different from all of you because when we're talking about religion, you all talk about it in terms of the internet. Okay, that's how you understand it. He said, that's not the way I think about it. I think about it as outward behavior. What is Judaism? Conforming to a series of rules. Outwardly following. So he actually said, you know, in, in Judaism, and by that he's talking about the strain of Judaism that we would have called Pharisaism, that eventually, and actually, you gotta remember that in ancient Judaism, Pharisaism was not a dirty word. Uh, that developed into today what we would call Orthodox Judaism or Hasidic Judaism and so on. Uh, he said, you know, for us, adultery 
is not something that occurs within the heart. Adultery is an action. His actual, I can't make his point. It was very, very straight and direct, but uh, not appropriate for this audience. But in any event, he said, you know, this is, this is something you do. It's not something you think. It's not the, the inner man, because, of course, everybody does that kind of thing. Uh-oh. If everybody has these adulterous thoughts in their heart, then and adultery is actually occurring, if I have the adulterous thoughts in my heart, then what hope do I have of being saved? So therefore, it's got to be just the old, you know, outward stuff, right? And that's, Paul is saying, no, this is not, a, this is not merely change your behavior. If all we're talking about is a change of behavior, if that's what we're pressing in, so many different parents, they do this, they press this upon their kids. It's an outside in, okay? I just want you to, to, to act differently, to behave differently, okay? Uh, it's the whitewashed tomb principle. The outside may look good, but inside it's full of dead men's bones. And you will find that all that leads to is advanced hypocrisy, where people become good at hiding the evil, that's actually going on within them. But their desires haven't changed. Their heart hasn't changed. And this is, it's not renovation. It's not, let's improve the old man. Let's take out some of the rottenness, paint some of the portions, you know, fix up the old dilapidated old man and put him back on his feet. That is not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about something altogether different. He's talking about a new creation. He's talking about new life. He's talking about an entirely changed nature. And he's saying to the Ephesians, that's you. Christians, he's saying to you, that's you. An entirely different thing than you were at one time. Different desires. And that's the key. How will we know that we've changed? Well, when our desires change. The Andy who's standing before you now and preaching is not the Andy that once was. This kind of setting that we're in at the moment would have been the furthest thing from my desires. I would have had no interest whatsoever being here. Either standing up and speaking, I wouldn't have known what to say, wouldn't have had, you know, no understanding of any of this. But I certainly wouldn't have wanted to have sat down under it. And if I was dragged into the assembly, so to speak, and forced to sit through the sermon, how would I have responded? Well, I would have been surreptitiously today. I mean, I couldn't do it in my own life. I would have been texting. I would have been thinking my own thoughts, distracting myself. Or I was a pretty bad kid. I would have found ways to sneak out and stay out for as long as possible or just fall asleep and escape that way. But I would have had no desire to be here. I would have had no desire for anything to do with holiness because my heart was not right. My heart was, was a natural man's heart. And the things that I wanted were very worldly things. And I worked in accordance with my desires. But you see, what happened is my desires changed. And they changed radically. They changed fundamentally at the very heart of who I am. Let me ask you this question. and Don't lie to yourself. Listen for a second. Please, if you haven't been listening at all, wake up and listen. Do you desire Christ? Do you desire fellowship? Do you look forward to the means of grace? Is this table an act 
active thing for you wherein you do self-examination and then you come and you renew your commitment to Christ and you say to the world, I am His, He is mine. I'm in union with Him. I am not a perfect person, but I am a redeemed Christian. When you come into this place, you get a sense, even if you're out of sorts, you've been grumbling at the world, you're feeling hard done by, but you're like, this is where I belong. This is who I am. When I'm in the midst of the church, there I feel at home. Or is it when you go outside of the church, here you feel uncomfortable, this is not my place, these are not my people, I don't understand why this is interesting to anybody, but I'll endure it for a little while, and then I go back out into the world, whether it's my unit, or it's my company, or it's my friends, or it's my school, now I'm at home. Now I'm with the people I understand and have desires that are similar to They want money. I want money. They want sex. I want sex. They want booze. I want booze. We are so simpatico. We're going along the same lines. And that's true. If that's your desire, if that's all you want, if you just want fame, wealth, money, and pleasure, you're worldling. What happens to the worldling when they die? All of their hopes become nothing. Because what was their heart tied up in? Vanities, emptiness, frivolity. The devil said to them every day, amuse yourself. And they tried. But at the end, what did they get? The end of, and and life is so short compared to eternity. It's nothing at all. At the end of this time of probation, what do they have? Nothing at all in the end. They frittered away the life they were given. They frittered away the opportunities that were set before them. The Christian is the person who feels uncomfortable in the sinful environment. The Christian is the person who can work in a business and understand they're working for God ultimately and therefore they'll do the best job they possibly can or they'll be a soldier to God's glory or so on. But they understand at the end of the day, this is not my home. This is not all I'm looking for. This is not where I belong ultimately. I was made for something more than this. I was made for worship. Let me put it absolutely simply to you, you don't have to drag a Christian to church. You can't stop them. They disobey the authorities in order to continue worshiping. I know one thing about my my Chinese friends who I, I speak to on a regular basis, their theology may be whack at certain points. They'll say things like, oh, mackerel. But these guys are willing to die to go to church or spend years in a concentration camp in order to go to church because they can't stay away because it's their heart's greatest desire to be in communion and fellowship with Jesus and the saints. That's what they were made for. If that's you, I don't care what kind of a weak Christian you are. I do, actually. That's a complete lie. (laughs) Let me back up. I'm concerned about what kind of a weak Christian you are, but I know you're a Christian. Are you struggling with sin or are you under its dominion? Do you live by it? If you're struggling with sin, good. This side of glory, we always struggle with sin. If you don't think you're struggling with sin, it's because you're either not saved or you're blind. One or the other. What Paul is saying is you'll see that difference. Now, I need to make this point to you. 
it was very interesting to me that as we, we drove through Jerusalem, you were constantly going from sector to sector, okay? There's a small Christian community, and then you would drive out of it into, and you immediately knew you were in the Orthodox Christian, uh, the Orthodox Christian, what am I talking about? You could leave the Orthodox Christian area, and then you would drive into the Orthodox Jewish area, and so on. You knew you were in an Orthodox Jewish area. The language told you, the way people dressed told you, and so on. And then you would go into a Muslim area. Suddenly everything's in Arabic first, and, and the dress and so on of the people tells you where you are. That's Jerusalem back then. Ephesus didn't have divided sections. Believe it or not, they, they found no evidence whatsoever that there was a Jewish uh, section of Ephesus, which means the Jews were actually incorporated into the community, and the Christians certainly were. You are in the same situation, aren't you? You live in Fayetteville. You lived in a mixed community. You, you, there's no, we all dress the same. We all talk the same. And it's very distinctive. You move out of the Christian community in Fayetteville, and now you're in the not, you know, that kind of thing. There's no Christian ghetto here in Fayetteville. So how do you distinguish between Christians and non-Christians in Fayetteville? By their walk, right? It used to be said, and I've actually seen this, in a, you, could see a, you could tell a sailor by the way he walked. And I mean a sailor not on the, you know, the modern cruise liners. They are, it's amazing. You can be in the most, you know, ridiculously rough sea and they've got these jet stabilizers on the side which make it just seem like this and the, you know, the sea's hitting you at this ridiculous rate and so on. But in the old days, they didn't have jet stabilizers. The, the deck was constantly pitching and sometimes, you know, like this and so on. And as a result, a sailor developed a distinctive walk that he couldn't get rid of when he got to land. Because he was always, you know, he was walking differently because he was used to emotion that was going from side to side. You could tell a sailor by the way he walked. It was part of him. He'd learned to walk that way. And so Christians, can people tell you're a Christian by the way you walk? The way you've learned to walk in Christ? If I go to your social media page, how much scrolling will it do, take me before I realize this guy's a Christian or this woman's a Christian? Or will I come to the opposite conclusion going through your social media feed? Oh, that's, that's not Christianity. Can people tell you by the way you walk? Because you live in the middle of a mixed society. We can't simply put on garments like the Amish or the Orthodox Jews or the Muslims that proclaim outwardly our religious affiliation. We don't do that. The way the world's going to be able to tell whether you're a Christian is by the way you walk. That's what Paul says. That's what God says. That's what I've seen. How do you walk? Ask that question of yourself. Because if you're not walking with Christ, you're walking away from Christ. And if you're not with him at the end of time, and he's not with you, you're going to be in a sorry condition. And then everything that you thought was important in this life will be what? Vanity. Vanity of the mind. Vanity of, of trade. Vanity of everything. Vanity of religion even. It'll all have been purposeless. So therefore, live according to that high calling. Walk with Christ. You have not so learned him that you live like a worldling. You do not, in this life, have much chance of being a perfect Christian. But fear not, this life is very short. And anyone who has walked with Christ in this world will someday be glorified and perfectly sanctified and perfectly happy forever.
Christ tells you this. And his apostles reinforced that point, those who walked with him. I want to walk with Paul. I want to walk, more importantly, with the one whom Paul was following. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, we thank you so much for the admonitions and the instruction that you give us within your word. Thank you, O Lord, for telling us the truth. Help us to listen to it. Help us to examine ourselves, to know who we are at heart. And then, O Lord, to act accordingly. Lord, I pray that nobody here would have a house built on sand that ultimately is going to be destroyed by the storms that will come in this life. May they have houses that are built on the firm foundation of hearing your 